Are you ready for good talk? Yes, of course you're ready for good talk, because this is Friday, and Fridays are good talk. Chantelle Bears in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is still in Scotland. They're holding him hostage in the Highlands. But we're glad they're both with us, because we have a couple of interesting things to talk about today, as we always do on Fridays. Um, I want to start with a story that got some degree of coverage this week, but I don't think a, a lot, certainly not, I don't think enough, um, I think there was more warranted, more discussion on this topic warranted. It was a story that happened in Peterborough, Ontario, and if you're unaware of where that city is, kind of a little northeast of Ottawa, a little southwest, sorry, southwest of Ottawa, northeast of Toronto, not halfway, a little closer to Toronto than Ottawa, but nevertheless, that's where it is positioned. Um, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, was there this week to speak actually on behalf of one of his provincial counterparts, one of the NDP candidates in that region, Peterborough, running in the provincial election coming up on June 2nd. Well, that's not abnormal. Those things happen. But what was abnormal, or at least in our world today, perhaps is not as abnormal as it used to be, was there's a, was a, a crowd formed outside the event location. And they were an aggressive, angry crowd. Not big, not a huge crowd, but big enough to make a noise and big enough to draw attention. And what were they upset about? They were upset about Jagmeet Singh. They called him a lot of things. Um... They yelled at him directly in his face as he came out to leave, uh, to get into his car. I'll give you some quotes. You're an effing piece of S, and you lying piece of S. People got really close, gave him the finger in his face, yelled and screamed at him, called him a traitor. Who were they? I don't know, there was a few titles of the group. Freedom Through Unity, Peterborough was one of the names. Now, the backdrop to this was a, you know, a, a statement put out by the uh, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS. It was two years ago now. It was obtained by the CBC through an access to information request, but CSIS put this statement out to its political masters. That quoting here, political figures in Canada are facing threats of violence and online abuse with increasing regularity. That was two years ago. And we've seen evidence of that since then. Most notably, I guess, was the last election campaign when they were uh, you know, basically attacking Justin Trudeau, the liberal leader, coming out of his bus, throwing rocks at him in, uh, I think it was around London, Ontario. And then, of course, there was the convoy in Ottawa earlier this year, and some of the things that were said, not necessarily done, but said at that time, about political leaders in Canada. So the question I want to start with is, is that CSIS report from two years ago now starting to show that, in fact, not only was that sense of where we're heading accurate, but that it's getting more and more difficult, more and more open, that there's no fear, it appears, in the hearts of these demonstrators to do this kind of verbal and almost physical attack on political leaders in Canada political figures in Canada, and what, if anything, should be done is being done about it. There, were no, there was no police follow-up to what happened in Peterborough, at least as far as I can see, partly because the NDP didn't complain about it. They just took it, although Singh since has said this was the most terrifying moment of his political life so far. So, Chantel, why don't you... Uh, why don't you start us on this? I think uh, the 
Peterborough Police is actually looking into some of the individuals that are seen uh, and the visuals. Uh, you don't always need to complain for someone to uh, be guilty of harassment or, or assault uh, in, in a public venue. Uh, there's no um, there's no rule that says the police uh, are forced to look the other way. I think it is getting worse, uh, and I and and I think every um, political uh, figure in this country needs to pay attention to this, not just because their own uh, security could be at stake. Uh, and the last thing you want if you're a politician in Canada is to be walking around with a, you know, a, a phalange of, of policemen around you and security guards that cut you off. That is not how we do it. Uh, what Chuck Singh was doing, was doing in Peterborough is something that all of us who covered campaigns are familiar with. You drop into the local candidate's headquarters, you say something encouraging, you walk out and you go home or on to your next event. Uh, and you usually don't do it with a layer of security around you. I'm saying every politician, not just for their own safety, because uh, their over-the-top language by politicians and leading figures does uh, trigger bad behavior. Uh, the more charged the atmosphere in politics, the more likely you're going to trigger uh, this sense that anything goes because you are angry and you're going to show that you're angry at whatever target uh, is pointed at. I'll bring you back to an incident um, decades ago now, after the uh, 1995 referendum, when 24 Sussex, Jean Chrétien and his wife, found an intruder in the house. That person had clearly been triggered by all the rhetoric around the referendum and, and the states. Since then, language coming from politicians, often leading ones, has only become more and more um, over the top. There was a tweet this week from a leading conservative candidate, Pierre Poilievre, not to name him, that basically tells people that uh, the Trudeau government has been following them, tracking them to the beer store and to the drugstore and to, 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 to the supermarket. Spying Give me a break it. here. Uh, it's, it's, and I have to say I waited all week for politicians who, who do have an audience among the kinds of people who are protesting in freedom, so-called freedom convoys, and whose theme is freedom, uh, to kind of say there are lines and limits to what you can do. And I did not hear that. And I think at some point it's going to... It's going to turn against the very people who are exploiting it for their own partisan purposes. I should mention uh, at that point that, uh, you know, some politicians have spoken out um, yes. in, you know, in, in uh, uh, Singh's favor, including the, one of the conservative leadership candidates, Scott Atchison, who condemned and John Shaggy. And John Shaggy. And John Shaggy. Right. So, so, no, there, there were a number of them. There were some very, very silent ones. A lot of silent ones. Um, Bruce? Well, I'm glad Chantel mentioned the question about police because I do think that, you know, when I saw that, I'm not a lawyer, but it did sort of look to me like that would be considered assault, uh, you know, if it happened to other people. And it shouldn't be the case that because there's anxiety about how will it look if people get charged for going out and complaining about a politician that the police do nothing. So I'm glad that the police are looking into it. I don't think at the end of the day that that the solution to this problem that we're talking about is more policing. However, I think it is more guardrails uh, over our conversation as a society. And I don't think it's only politicians who are finding themselves victim or drawn into it, but it happens disproportionately in politics right now. And it would be um, it would be a mistake from my standpoint if if I felt that the conversation that we're having this morning suggested that it, it is equally triggered by all political parties. I don't think that's true. And I don't think it, you've said it. I don't think Chantal said it, but um, I've never heard Jagmeet Singh say things that would incite people to do the kinds of things that we saw against him or against his political opponents. I've not heard Justin Trudeau do that. I don't think I can feel the same way about the kind of comments coming from uh, Pierre Polyev. 
Um, and he's not the first uh, conservative to use the kind of language that makes people feel not that he's that they're in, being instructed to do things, but rather that they're entitled to take more action than anybody ever had thought was reasonable in a democratic society. And so when they see the kind of coverage, I think what's going on now is that the people who feel inclined to go out and take these kinds of actions, say these sorts of things, they don't look at it and shrink from it and say, oh, I guess we got carried away. Maybe we better not do that again. I think they feel empowered by it. And I think that when politicians are either silent in the face of it or continue to say things that are unmistakably fire all the gatekeepers, do away with all the gatekeepers, they're doing horrible things to your life, you don't even know about some of the things that they're doing to your life, it's not a mystery that this reaches a certain part of our society, not a very big part, but not a very, very tiny part either who then take that and say, you know, my job isn't to go to a public town hall meeting once every four years and offer a different point of view. It isn't to wait for the politician to come to my door and say, I don't agree with what you're saying and here's why. It's to go and find them where they are and to connect with other people who want to find them where they are. Those people didn't just happen to be in that place where Jagmeet Singh was. They were instructed by others, probably using one of the social platforms, we don't need to name it, to go there at that moment if they wanted to verbally attack and, um, and assault this individual who's the leader of a political party in Canada. And by the way, happens to be the most popular leader of a political party in Canada at the federal level. So I saw in your note earlier that we were talking about this because we were worried about polarization. And I am worried about polarization, but I'm not seeing it as an equal force at either ends of the spectrum. And um, I know we're going to have some conservative leaning listeners who are going to say, there goes Bruce again. He's kind of always on about the conservatives, but I'm sorry if we're going to talk about this subject, I feel like that's an important part of it. In the States, too. Yeah, let me let me make a couple of points, and I know Chantel wants to get back in. First of all, you know, I don't think this happened as a result of, uh, you know, the conservative leadership race. Um, it, you know, some of the things that have been said in that may have given license to some people to, to, to get more involved. But let's, let's face it, this CSIS report came out two years ago. More than two years ago. So, it, it, you know, it, you can't even blame the pandemic feelings in, in the country for it. There's something out there um, that's caused this depth of anger to the point we're seeing these kind of incidents happen on an increasing basis. And they have been happening for a number of years now. Um, I, I agree with you absolutely. And I'm sure Chantel does as well. We're talking about a minority uh, a, a, a very small minority of people, but nevertheless, they're having an impact. They're disrupting the process, and they're putting people's lives at risk, at danger. Um, so what I'm trying to understand is, what is the the root cause, if you will, of this depth of anger? Why, like, why, why has this? suddenly emerged over the last few years as a real risk in, uh, you know, tidy, old, quiet, old Canada in terms of the political um, discussion that occurs in our, in our country. Chantal? Uh, I'd say that uh, it's hard not to look south of the border to the Trump experiment as a uh, part and parcel of how uh, it has been on the rise. Uh, and and not Donald Trump's um, approach to uh, people who were not of his views as enemies uh, and the rejection of uh, institutions uh, and, and leadership figures as being... Uh, deliberately disconnected or or not interested in the fate of of ordinary quote unquote ordinary people uh workers 
uh, all of that kind of builds up a case that the system is rigged against you. And anyone who argues otherwise is part of the system. You, you have to tie it into the spread of conspiracy theories, uh, the World Economic Forum, where people gather once a year to plan your future uh, and to take over your life and control it. I think it, it ties into all of those things and the tools of social media, which makes mobilization in the sense that you are not alone in feeling this. There are others like you. Uh, and if you look back at the, the convoy, and I always hesitate to call it the truckers convoy because I know that the majority of truckers were actually on the road doing trucking over the course of those weeks. So I, I think we should take that word and, out of the vocabulary. And vaccinated it. And, and vaccinated, vaccinated. Yep. but but they 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 their their agenda they published that manifesto called for overturning a duly elected government. You cannot just take one incident in Peterborough and say this is um, a bunch of of people who are prone to violence and not look all around at the environment that fosters it. And while we do not in this country uh, have an environment that has fostered uh, these kinds of ways to express your convictions, I, you call it intimidation, uh, there is a constituency for that. And while uh, I know that conservatives will say Bruce is always on against them, it is a fact of life that the only party in this country that has a sizable group of members who believe that Donald Trump was robbed of his victory is the Conservative and the People's Party. They are not Liberals or New Democrats or Black Quebecois members. Uh, so, and that's why I think if you're a leading figure in politics in this country and you are not calling out intimidation um, in the shape of what happened to Jagmeet Singh this week, you are not uh, exercising leadership is basically what it boils down to, no matter what your uh, right, left, or center. Bruce? Well, I, I just wanted to add one thing. I agree with everything Chantal just said. The, the, and she referred to the internet and the role of the internet. And I, I just can't look at what's going on without saying that we've created essentially the largest new manufacturing industry that we've seen probably in a hundred years, but the manufacturing product is hate and anger. And um, I don't think anybody really set out to do that, but we found something about how these connection platforms work that revealed something about um, what you can monetize in human nature and what exists in human nature that um, maybe hadn't been able to connect in the same way in the past. So I, I, when I say this, I don't really, I, I, I think social platforms can do a lot better job at, at dealing with the, the issues that have come up. But my point is more that we didn't have the same ability um, to instantly um, connect people who are angry and who want to give vent to their anger with other people. And we didn't as a consequence also have politicians who made it their business to seek out this phenomena and to try to make a meal of it. And that isn't only um, conservative politicians who have done that over the last decade or two, uh, to be clear. Uh, I think it's disproportionately small C conservative politicians in Canada who've done it, but it's not only uh, conservatives who can and do do it. Uh, but it's a big, it's a big problem and politicians do it at their peril because as Chantel said before, and you did too, Peter, um, this is going to come back to bite them at some point. Uh, it, it, it doesn't only work one way. Uh, the more angry and hateful people get, the more entitled they feel they are to express their hatred and their anger at uh, public figures, the more people whose lives, and I don't think you were wrong to use that expression, whose lives are at stake. Um, and, uh, and it would be typically Canadian of us to understate that risk and to say, well, you know, their safety is at risk or their quality of life is endangered, but their lives are at risk, too. And we should we should call it what it is. Just to add one short point, uh, 
it's one thing to say uh, that the constituency self-identifies more to the right than the left, but the, the invention of culture wars is not the property of the right. It has come from exactly. the center and it has come from the left and it has come from the liberal party, to name just one. Uh, you, if you're a voter in this country at this point, you have a choice and either you are a good Canadian and you are de facto liberal because you are so accepting of others and so tolerant, or if you look at the conservative side of the spectrum, you cannot be a good conservative because you identify with some of the values of the Liberal Party. All parties have played to this. Uh, it used to be that the NDP had a brand that was more ideological. I would say that the Liberals now own as ideological a brand as the NDP used to in the past, maybe more so than the NDP. Uh, and that contributes to it. This, this sense that um, you're just out of the conversation because you don't share our liberal values and Canadian values are de facto liberal values. It's a trend that the Liberal Party federally has had for years and it's been accentuated over the past decade uh, that Justin Trudeau has been leader. Well, I, I think we, uh, as a last comment on this before we move on, uh, all I would say is I think we all have to keep our, you know, our eyes wide open on this because the trend appears clear over these last few years. And, you know, when you look at that trend over time and the direction in which things are going, it's not a nice picture. And the fear for the future should exist on the part of not only political for, uh, uh, parties, but on the, uh, on the side of security forces. And the awareness of people about what's happening Um and what they may or may not be able to do about it. I mean, listen, protest is a natural part of our system. It's a good part of our system. Protest usually is you know, against the government in power or those who are supporting the government in power. And that may be part of what Peterborough was all about because of the deal between the NDP and the Liberals on continuing in power for another three years uh, on the part of the Liberal government. But those kind of things are natural protests. What isn't natural is the kind of protest movements that we've seen over these last few years and how that depth of anger seems to be uh, increasing, not decreasing. Um, so that's all. I'm glad we've had this discussion. Uh, and now let's move on to one of the other bigger stories of the break uh, of the week. When we come back from this quick break, we'll talk about uh, another interesting conservative leadership debate. And we're back with Good Talk. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Dornick, Scotland. I'm in Toronto. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto this week. Um, I won't say anything about last night's hockey game that involved a Toronto team, other than to remind you they call it a best-of-seven series for a reason, and the seventh game is tomorrow night. Congratulations to those fans uh, in Edmonton who were hoping their Oilers could uh, keep that series alive and get to a game seven, and that they did last night in Los Angeles, so good for them. All right. Um, you're listening to Good Talk on Sirius XM Channel 167 Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform. All right. Last week we talked about the conservative leadership debate, which the, the first one, the unofficial one, was a bit of a gong show with people going after each other uh, very directly. Um, this week in the first official debate, English language debate and likely the only English language debate that's going to take place. It was a different kind of gong show. I mean, the first hour is dominated by kind of bizarre theatrics on, on the part of the way the debate was organized. Um, it was kind of like a kindergarten show, quite frankly. The second hour was more interesting. They actually did kind of debate issues. And one of the issues they ended up uh, discussing and arguing about was the future of the Bank of Canada and specifically the governor of the Bank of Canada, Pierre Polyev, who is often at the, 
at, at the front of these kind of discussions and and uh, whatever fireworks are associated with it, um, announced at the debate in Edmonton that he would fire the governor of the Bank of Canada because he doesn't believe in in the way he's been fighting inflation. Now, that uh, has garnered lots of headlines. not the first time a Bank of Canada governor has been kind of isolated um, by uh, the opposition party. Jean Chrétien ran a campaign, at least partly, against John Crow, who was the Bank of Canada governor back in 1993, 92, 93, when that election took place. Um but this was a pretty direct comment and a direct attack and said he would fire him if he was the prime minister. Not that he'd wait till his term was over, but he'd fire him. And that's seen by a lot of people as intruding on the arm's length relationship between government and the Bank of Canada. Even though, of course, it is the government, the prime minister of the day, who appoints a Bank of Canada governor. Nevertheless... It garnered a lot of uh, interesting discussion and debate, and a lot of, of the other candidates attacked him directly for it. So in terms of uh, of this week's debate, which once again could be the last English-language debate, there's a French-language debate coming up, even though, as Chantel points out, only two of the six candidates actually speak fluent French. Um, nevertheless, Bruce, why don't you start us on this week's uh, developments? Well, I hope there are more of these debates because I, and I'm not, I'm going to resist the the opportunity to talk about the format um, because a lot of people have weighed in on the format, and um, so I don't think I have anything to add there. I do think that in in kind of considering the commentary that I read after the fact about what happened, what was said, um, it's these are always inelegant, and there's always a kind of a uh, should we overmanage. Uh, because the risks of undermanaging the debate are too great, or is it the reverse? And in the end, all I ever really hope for is that as a vetting process, they add something to the ability of viewers to discern between the candidates. Um, I say I hope that there's going to be more because I think that Pierre Polyev is probably the um, the front runner and not by a little bit in this race. And I think that it's important that people have a chance to hear what he has to say and hear him challenged and see how he responds to those challenges. And I think that um, more of that is better for the conservative party and for the country. Um, I think Jean Charest uh, still to me, looks as though he's got the most to offer as a leadership candidate, but finds it uncomfortable and awkward to be running for the leadership of a party that isn't really the party that he left way back when and isn't sure that it wants somebody who has his experience and his values. Um, and I can understand his anger, his, his sort of his discomfort, I suppose, with that. Um, I do think he's making progress of a sorts o- over time in uh, presenting himself as an alternative to Pierre Polyev. And the last thing I'll say is that the conversation about cryptocurrency, and we talked about this before, uh, has taken on an, a new sense of urgency and interest, I think, given where inflation is at, given what's been happening with stock markets. Um, and so probably when Pierre Polyev started his campaign and talked up wanting to bring down the gatekeepers and wanting to avoid inflation by introducing uh, the cryptocurrency he thought that that wasn't that no harm could really befall him because the economy looked pretty strong because it didn't really look as though people would measure the risk of a Polyev economic plan um, the way they may be willing to measure it now. And I saw in what Justin Trudeau said yesterday, who in an untypical mood move weighed in on the on Mr. Polyev's comments about the governor of the Bank of Canada. And what was most interesting to me about what he said was he talked about how Canadians, not just consumers, but businesses and investors, um, look at Canada in a positive way because we have a strong and independent central bank and because our currency can be counted on. And I thought what he was doing was kind of setting up the conversation that might have to happen later. Where 
um, moderate, maybe business-oriented, conservative-leaning voters having to choose between a Trudeau and a Polyev, if Trudeau runs again, would look at Polyev and say, he sounds too disruptive. He sounds like there are too many things that he's going to do as part of his mantra against gatekeepers and for the people and against all of the elites that maybe we can't we can't get behind him. So I think that's it's been an interesting week in that race. Uh, obviously, I don't think the debate was everything that everybody on the stage hoped that it would be. OK, a um, couple of points. Uh, uh, when the two debates came up last week and this week, Pierre Poiliev was widely acknowledged to have a lead and to be running a good campaign. So here were two opportunities to step into the frame of a future prime minister, something that a lot of people were now considering quite possible. And he missed both of those opportunities. Uh, he comes out of the debates with more questions about whether he is a suitable prime minister uh, than, he, than, than, the, than were raised before the debates. And those questions, which he will dismiss as being the mainstream media, come from the left and the right and the center. I have rarely seen so many columns on this after a debate that say the same thing about the leading candidate, and that is uh, that Pierre Poiliev is not demonstrating uh, the uh, gravitas and the maturity uh, to uh, be a suitable prime minister. I think that's not something you want to do when you're uh, trying to win the leadership of a party to be prime minister. I am not saying that will prevent him from winning the conservative leadership. Uh, those are apparently two different things, and it speaks to an ongoing problem of disconnection between the conservative base and mainstream voters, not the mainstream media. If you were going to suggest that you would fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, you probably would want to do it in a frame other than a partisan debate where you just drop it off the top in your presentation. You would want to explain it uh, and, and explain why that would solve any problem and how you think, what, what would your Bank of Canada governor look like, really, if you think that that's where your problem is? I believe part of the reason that was dropped at the debate is to deflect from the Bitcoin debate debacle. Uh, this is it's nothing short of a catastrophe to have suggested to people that they should go for Bitcoins to shelter from inflation. I'm quoting Pierre Poiliev here and then see what has happened to Bitcoins over the course of the past two months. Now, for a guy who says that he can second guess the governor of the Bank of Canada on inflation, that's a pretty poor bet uh, and a pretty poor sign of what is coming. So when, there will not be another debate before all members are signed up. And that's probably good news for Pierre Poiliev uh, because he, it's one thing to argue in the parallel universe of a partisan crowd as he has been doing. And it's another to fail the test of reality in the larger uh, world where most Canadians who are watching or did not go there with a, a sign that says, Pierre, 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 uh, please uh, become our leader. A word on Jean Charrier, who is uh, someone I have covered for decades now. I think he looks too angry. And my memory of Jean Charrier looking angry is usually when things are not going his way or the way he would want it to be. I understand that that is probably the case, but he does look too angry. Uh, and he's, going, he's a professional politician. He's been at this game for a long time. He looks like he's chiding conservative members who do not want to vote for him. And I think his, his campaign team should look at those tapes and get their own internal anger in check because there is now a lot of it and a lot of bad blood. Uh, to think that the people who are watching do not every morning wake up in the middle of this bloodbath that is the CPC leadership campaign, and they are looking for um, voices of reason, not voices of anger. That being said, Jean Charest and others this week uh, on the Bitcoin, and that's why Justin Trudeau, I think, jumped uh, on it, really provided the, the liberals with even more 
uh, clips for the next campaign. And these go, and the party should worry about that, they go to the uh, reputation of uh, fiscal competence of the Conservative Party, that this is their front runner, and this is how uh, he goes about talking about the economy uh, and the Bank of Canada. This is... um uh, this is an interesting discussion because it, it, it's one of the things that I've always found um, difficult to accept in terms of political party leadership campaigns. And I'm not isolating the conservatives here. In fact, I'm not, I'm not just talking about Canada. It happens elsewhere as well, uh, where you're... The people you're trying to attract are your own party members, and that's all. And usually what goes over best with a party... Um, a political party is attacking the opposition, right? Is really going after them, throwing red meat to the base, getting people uh, excited about the way you can perform against the opposition. And in sometimes in a leadership race, the opposition is right there on the stage with you. So I, I loved um, Chantel's image at the beginning of her comments there about this was the opportunity for Polyev to step into the frame the picture frame of a future prime minister and that he lost that opportunity. Um, as much as he likes to say he's campaigning to be prime minister, he's not. He's campaigning to be conservative leader. And so you wonder if the frame that he was stepping into in that regard was one he was fulfilling because he was throwing the red meat, either whether it was an attack on, on Justin Trudeau or an attack on the Bank of Canada or an attack on one of his, you know, opponents on stage. After all, didn't he just call, you know, a charret a crook last week? Um, so, I, you know, it, it's funny because they, when they're running for the leadership, they're taking one approach, which they then have to water down if they win to try and unite some semblance of their, their party afterwards. Um, but I, I, I find that really an interesting part of this discussion and an interesting part of this moment that we're in in terms of watching the history of the uh, CPC. Bruce, you want it in? Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion too. And I know that every party, all of the major parties anyway, have their own internal dynamics. There's a near left and a far left in the liberal party and and they don't all get along very well. Um, But you know, in the best days or months or years of the Liberal Party, they managed to kind of bottle it up and deal with it internally and um, make whatever mistakes the majority of them want to make uh, or whatever mistakes the leadership group wants to make. Um, but the bad blood between the near right and the far right to oversimplify the categories has been intense for a long time. I know what it felt like in the years 93, 95, 97, as the kind of reform-oriented version of the Conservative Party met up with the Progressive Conservative Party and kind of understood the math of getting together, but always hated the chemistry of getting together. It's always been a problem. It's never really been uh, resolved. And as I watched the Harper years, it felt to me like he was skilled at uh, bottling up those tensions. And he did it by force of personality. But the reflexes of the party, when they fail, fail because they veer back towards the furthest right, most animated segment of the party, because that puts them out of touch with the mainstream that's required for them to get to the, you know, the extra five percentage points, basically five or 10 percentage points of voters that allow them to win elections. And I was reminding myself that of of what ultimately I think ended the career of Stephen Harper as prime minister is the way that his party campaigned in the run up to that 2015 election. Now, it's possible that Justin Trudeau would still have won that election, but Justin Trudeau wasn't expecting to win that election. Some of the decisions, the political choices um, on uh, the kneecap, on cultural practices that were taken by his conservative government and his conservative party set them up for defeat. And that's not just me saying that that's Michelle Rempel Garner and a whole bunch of other people in the conservative party who say, when we look back on that, those were mistakes and they weren't mistakes that were born of a really serious policy thoughtfulness. They were mistakes born of doing the political math in a way that was 
that felt energizing, but was in effect reckless. And I think that is the problem that the Conservative Party has now is that the less reckless people aren't really around very much. I mean, they ended up almost picking Max Bernier, which would have been arguably the most reckless choice. Instead, they ended up with Andrew Scheer, who was a pretty reckless choice. And then when they found Aaron O'Toole, a less reckless choice, they threw him out almost immediately, even though, you know, by my lens anyway, I thought he was sort of working on building a more competitive uh, conservative party. And so now they're reflexing back towards this, you know, this kind of reckless instinct uh, that we want to holler louder than everybody else. And, and that'll make us feel good. But where it ends up, I think, is is putting them in a situation where when they should be positioned to defeat the liberals in the next election, by any kind of historical math, that should be the frame going into the next election. With Pierre Polyev, if he keeps on acting like this, I don't know that they will be in that position. And, and that's the at the heart of the choice that they probably should be thinking about, but doesn't don't appear to be. All right. I know Chantel wants in on this, and she will be in on this right after this. Welcome back. You're uh, listening to Good Talk on the Bridge on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, and your favorite podcast platform. Sean Bear is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Dornick, Scotland. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. Um, okay, we're into the last segment of Good Talk for this week, and the floor is yours, Chantal. I want to pick up on something uh, Bruce talked about uh, uh, about the 2015 election and, and the, the the conservative brain trust around Stephen Harper falling prey to its uh, um, worst wedge-seeking instincts uh, at cost to the party and to Mr. Harper's re-election prospects. Just to note that, yes, the chemistry was never really good, but prior to the 2015 election, there were always people of influence uh, around Stephen Harper, who who stood as, as standard bearers for the, the the more progressive approach and the, the build bridge building to mainstream voters that the Conservative Party needed to do. By 2015, James Moore, who had been the Heritage Minister and was part of the inner circle of, of Stephen Harper, was gone. Uh, so was Peter McKay former leader of the, the Tories. Jim Flaherty was not around anymore. Uh, and when I listened in this campaign to uh, Pierre Poiliev talk about Jean Chagrin the way that he does, as in that he's uh, uh, not a pure conservative and that he actually doesn't even belong on that stage, I see James Moore and Peter Mickey and people like that being talked about. Uh, and I... I believe that the Poiliev uh, clan seriously at this point has convinced me that they would rather purge the Conservative Party of those elements than have them on board to win an election. And that they believe that they can purge them and still win an election because they are going to be winning back the Maxime Bernier crowd and bringing to the ballot box voters who have not been engaged in the political process. I don't think that's going to work. Uh, but if it if it does, one, it means the Conservative Party will be a smaller version of itself going forward. And two, if a government like that ever came to power, I think we would see uh, a government that would have a seriously hard time advancing its policies, not only in Parliament, House and Commons and Senate, but also with the larger public. You cannot tell 60% or 65% of voters that they are, their opinions are disqualified because they are not true blue conservatives and this is the way the, conserv- the country will be going without courting an electoral disaster at some point down the line. One of those things you would be courting is a coming together of all those progressive forces uh, under a single roof to make sure that you are banned, not beaten, banned for, from power for the foreseeable future. So these are the real risks that the conservatives are running that they do not want to look at on the one hand. And the risk to all voters is a permanent hold on power for a party 
that is called the Liberal Party that gets tired intellectually and depleted of political energy, but just exists by default as, as the only governing alternative. So there is nothing good that we watched those debates. Even if you're a Liberal partisan, you've been celebrating, I don't think you should. It's not healthy for your party to feel great about the Conservatives maybe doing to themselves something that will make them less competitive against your party and allow your party to become more complacent, it already is, and less effective as a government. Bruce, you've been in the, the field of late, both on the Ontario election, but also in national terms. What is happening with that Max Bernier crowd, the People's Party, um, during this period, especially with the conservative leadership race going on. Do you sense any movement within that within that crowd? I mean, what did they represent in the last election, five or six percent? Oh, a little higher than that. I mean, I think that the um, the potential voter pool for the People's Party is just north, just a shade north of 20 percent. Um, and in order to win, some conservative, and it hasn't really been changing, Peter, and I don't think that those voters are really paying that much attention to the People's Party choice. Now, they probably are dialing in the conservative leadership thing a little bit. The, the challenge, of course, with those voters is that they will always want the angriest solution, um, the most radical sounding solution, because that's what got them to that place in the first place. Right. So if the conservatives end up choosing somebody who is less radical than somebody else who's on that stage or who Max Bernier can say is is not really true blue, most of those voters are likely to continue to vote for the People's Party if Max Bernier runs again and if the Internet continues to exist, which I have no doubt that it will. So. I so think just to clarify, not, just to clarify, when you say they have a pool of twenty percent, you're not you're not saying that's how many voted for the People's Party, but no, you're you're saying no. that's the group that they're trying to break into. That twenty percent. That's the that's number kind who of say limit. I would consider I would consider voting for the People's Party. And so, if you're running the leadership campaign for Leslin Lewis or for a Pierre Polyev, you're looking at those kinds of people and saying, well, you know, they're not members of that party. They can join our party and they can vote for one of us. And I think Leslin Lewis is is trying to find that part of the People's Party supporters who are faith-based uh, to the nth degree. And she's saying, Pierre Polyev isn't your candidate. Vote for me. Join the party and vote for me. I think it remains to be seen how well that's going to work. And I think Pierre Polyev is saying, you know, I can saddle up with these voters uh, for the course of this uh, leadership campaign. And because I'm clever, once I win, I'll be able to pivot. How many times have we heard that idea before that I'll be able to pivot and create a different image of myself uh, for Canadians to consume? I think it was a mistake for Aaron O'Toole to believe how that it would be easy to do that. But he had a better chance of doing that because he hasn't he never took positions that were as hard to uh, to pivot from uh, as Pierre Polyev is. And so I think Polyev is looking to uh, cultivate his support um, in the leadership among a lot of People's Party supporters. And that's why he uses the language that he uses. It's not a mistake. It's deliberate. He keeps going back at it over and over and over again. It's not something that you do if if you have anybody in your circle who is saying, hey, you know, boss, maybe we should just kind of soften that a little bit. We're getting hammered by all of the gatekeepers. They say we're getting hammered by all of the gatekeepers and let's put the pedal down to the floor. And I, I with Chantal, which is that the ideal world in Canada is competitive parties that can uh, appeal to a broad cross-section of Canadians and offer different uh, ideas on how to accomplish goals uh, because uh, complacency does set in when competition sucks. And, uh, you know, I kind of feel like uh, this party has a chance to be a stronger competitor, and right now it looks like it's not taking that, that right. chance. I've got uh, a 
less than two minutes left. Uh, do you want a final word on that, Chantal? Yes, uh, two two points. Uh, what's that expression? You don't get the second chance to make a good first impression. <laughs> I think that t- chance to make a good first impression, uh, that was the two debates that we watched. Uh, and, and I covered Stephen Harper on his way up two leadership campaigns and then two elections. He did not spend his time on his leadership campaigns seeding the ground for a defeat in an election, which is basically what's happening. And then here's the predicament, going back to the 20% who are open to voting for Maxime Bernier, here's the predicament for many conservatives. They fear or believe that if Jean Charest became leader, that 20% would start looking at Maxime Bernier more seriously. Uh, and so the party is really not at a crossroads uh, with the two highways, but trying to figure out what's on the other side of that big hill on either side. And that's not an easy place to be. You know, one of the things I love about politics is anytime they, you think somebody is dead in terms of their reputation in politics, time can offer you some uh, chance to 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 bring that reputation back uh, you know brian mulrooney is still in the process of trying to do that stephen harper when he left office and even if he ran for office today um well at least when he left office he was not a well respected or liked person but when you've seen what's happened to his party since you start to understand that what he achieved in his election victories and there were what, three of them at least three, um, 06, 08, 11, yeah, three. Yeah, three. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he achieved a lot. Uh, and he achieved those gains and those victories by, by having a strong hand on the rudder of his party and the things he allowed members of his party to say and do. Um, so it's interesting. Well, Peter, uh, remember, that, he, you have he 10 seconds. <laughs> He followed the model that Mulroney used with Clark. He did the same thing with Peter McKay. And the blood was never great with them, but they kept it together, and it was a good thing for their government. All right. We'll leave it at that for this week. Chantel in Montreal, Bruce in Scotland, great to have you with us, as always. And we'll be back again next week for Good Talk. And The Bridge will be back on Monday. Really interesting show on Monday. Can't tell you more about it because I don't have time, but I think you'll find it fascinating. That's Monday on The Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.